Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. If this is your first time here, hello, I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. If you'd please join me in a word of prayer, let's ask the Lord to help us understand His Word today and help us to really soak it in and really be doers of the Word and not hearers of the Word only. Lord, we thank You for bringing us here today. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy, Lord God. I pray that this message would open the eyes and the hearts of the peoples of this world to see the the truths about your Son, Jesus Christ, about who he really was, Lord. And and just pray, dear God, that you would change their lives by those truths, Lord God, through this message, through your Holy Spirit, through your voice, Lord God, that they would hear and not mine. Thank you, Lord God, and we love you and we praise you and we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53 today. We're going to be at the very end of Isaiah 52 and the whole chapter of Isaiah 53. The title of our sermon today, of course, is The Hope of Israel, Part 6. I'm going to read over these this uh, this very kind of short chapter and the last couple verses, few verses of the one chapter. I'm going to read them over today to help us get the whole context in our mind. But um, just a quick overview. Uh, we've been going through over this period of time at Gospel Saving Church here. God led me to stop uh, going verse by verse, book through book, book by book, I should say, through the Bible. Right now we're, we're focusing on a time that's, uh, that's dedicated to talking about the Messiah of the Tanakh, or the Jewish Holy Bible, or the Christian Old Testament Bible, that really would reveal to us who the Messiah of the Jews uh, would be when he came. And I've been stating all along that there's that the Old Testament or the Tanakh spoke of two different comings of the Messiah, not just one. And so, of course, but the Jews, of course, they don't they don't want to hear that. They think that there's only one coming, and then it's he's still they're still waiting for him to come the first time. Even though we looked at we've been looking at like last week, we looked at Daniel nine, which spoke of a specific time that he was going to come, which would have been in the first century A.D. that time period. Um, so anyway, there, there's no doubt in my mind, but maybe you still have a doubt in your mind who the Messiah is, who the Messiah will be. So what we're going to do is we're going to look today at another amazing, amazing prophecy that God has given us from the Tanakh Old Testament that points directly to uh who the Messiah would be, gave traits about him, gave specific details about him. And we're going to look at another one of those today. And, and, and it's amazing to me how much of a pinpoint accurate picture that God gives us uh, of this Messiah today from Isaiah 52 and 53 that pinpoint accurately points right to Jesus Christ being God's Messiah. So, uh, Today, I will continue to talk about Jehovah's suffering and rejected Messiah, not God's reigning and ruling Messiah. That's the second coming, and that will be a coming to. Um, this Messiah that I'm going to talk to you about today will be one that's killed for the sins of the world. That, that is, a, again, a pinpoint accurate parallel picture of Messiah of Daniel 9. Parallel in many details from Daniel 9 we talked about last week, except that God goes above the picture he gives of him and Daniel and goes to talk about the next step Messiah will take after he's killed for others. But as far as the two sections that we're going to study today, and I'm going to read them here in a minute, but Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, before I teach them, I want you to be aware of something. I want you to, I want to warn you that again today, our sections of study of the Jewish Bible are very controversial to the Jews. They're very controversial to those who do not believe that Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. I, uh, a Jew I read of last week who ended up becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, he gave a little bit of a story, and I'm going to read you his words. He wrote about uh, his story concerning Isaiah 53, and he, and he said this. Now, this was he said this, think he was a Jew who did not believe in Jesus and and he was writing now today or whenever he wrote that as somebody who did but he's speaking about the time he didn't believe in Jesus and he's in his own words concerning Isaiah 53 he said this in the rabbinical training that I had received well rabbinical means that he was going on to be a rabbi 
Uh, there, there's, I don't know of too many rabbis that are Christian rabbis. I mean, there are some, but in, in this context, he would have been talking about how he was a Jew, a non-believer of Jesus, and he was going on to be a rabbi. And he says this, in, a, in the rabbinical training I had received, the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah had been continually avoided in favor of other weightier, quote-unquote, matters to be learned. Yet, when I first read this passage, my mind was filled with questions. That's interesting, isn't it? He was a Jew. The Jews bypassed Isaiah 52 and 53 for weightier, quote-unquote, matters, right? Why would Isaiah 50 through 53, and I'll include the end of 52, for God begins the context of who he's speaking of there, but anyway, why would Isaiah, these two sections of their Jewish Bible, be avoided by the Jews? I mean, there's no doubt, there's no doubt in their mind, Isaiah was a prophet that God sent to tell them many things, and especially about their Messiah. Well, here's why. Because these two sections and these two chapters of their Bible and the Christian Bible that run together all as one amazing picture of Jehovah's Messiah, they speak of with pinpoint accuracy and precision God's Messiah experiencing exactly what was recorded of Jesus Christ during his life when he died and then when he was even resurrected. That's right. And it's all here in Isaiah 52 and 53. Jews for Jesus said this about it, and I had no idea they did this. Isaiah 53 is a well-known passage of Scripture to avid students of the Bible, but most people are not avid students and have not read this controversial passage. A recent informal survey illustrates this point. In the spring of 2000, Ephraim Goldstein, this is a Jews for Jesus ministry that I'm reading this from. This is their testimony. Uh, Ephraim Goldstein and several Jews for Jesus staff members conducted an informal, non-scientific survey of passerby on the streets of Tel Aviv. That would be, of course, in Israel. In that survey, listen to this, 100 Jews on the streets of Tel Aviv were asked, who do you think the 53rd chapter of Isaiah describes? Most were unfamiliar with the passage and were asked to read it before answering. After doing so, many concluded that they did not know to whom it referred. Some thought it was Jesus, but when it sunk in that the passage was a, was a citation from their own Tanakh, they were put off. They were like, well, what? Uh, excuse me? I, I know I read that. That was from where? Others shrugged off the passage as too difficult to understand. Some repeated what they had heard from Jews more religious than themselves, that it referred to the Jewish people or perhaps, perhaps even to the Gentile nations. All seemed, sadly, to think that whomever it referred to, it wouldn't make much difference in their lives. Boy, they couldn't have been more wrong. Isaiah 52 and 53 challenges everything that the religious Jews teach the Jews about Messiah. And, and all people, I don't care who you are, this is a broad statement, all people, all people, Jew or Gentile alike, have a funny way of dealing with, an, with any information that comes their way that does what? That contradicts what they believe or have been taught. Most with me will not even speak to me about the Bible's views about God, Jesus Christ, eternal life, things like abortion. Once I begin to talk about the things that the Bible literally says word for literal word. Why do they do that? Because most of what God's word says plainly word for literal word is not what people have been taught as truth, a biblical truth even, which means that they've been taught Things about the Bible that aren't even in the Bible. Very common. Very, 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 very common. Anyway, after my intro there, I want to let you know, I want to let you know what we're up against today with these two sections of God's Word. And, and I want to begin our, begin our awesome study. Uh, let's read over uh, the end of 52. We're going to be in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. And then we're going to read the whole chapter of Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. I hope you're ready. Let's do it. Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, God says this. 
Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what has not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Flip your eyes over there, Isaiah 53, 1-12. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And he is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by our stripes we, or by his stripes, we are healed. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shares the silence, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, there's if you just listened to that and you were reading along, now you know why most of those hundred Jews on the streets of Tel Aviv thought, before they knew where the citation was from, they thought it was about Jesus because, again, so many details that pointed there to the Messiah, that, that person that Jesus, that God was talking about in Isaiah 52 and 53, pinpoint precisely identifying what, exactly what Jesus Christ went through. Yet, that passage was written 800 years before Christ was ever born. We're going to talk about that at the end of the sermon, but... Let's get to it. I want to break it all down. Isaiah 52, first part of 13, verse 13. God says this, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, prosper, and do well, is the word prudently there. Who is Isaiah speaking of as my servant? Well, I could tell you who he's not talking about. He's not talking about someone that was his personal servant as a prophet. For you see, the Bible never says one place that Isaiah had a servant. Isaiah's servant, Isaiah was God's servant to the Jews, and he dealt with Jehovah and the people directly, which means that Isaiah 52.13, the my servant Jehovah speaking of, is actually Jehovah's servant, because God does have a servant, but who is this Jehovah's servant. As I told you earlier, the Jews today believe that Jehovah is referencing either the Jewish people, the nation, or the Gentile nations here, but I have tremendous problems with their interpretations because of one, the content of the whole two sections, and two, the context of, of these two chapters of Isaiah. And because of the content and context of Isaiah 52 and 53, the Jews who wrote the Babylonian Talmud in 500 AD, they had the same problems believing this was anything other than the messiah as i do here's what they say sanhedrin 98 be the messiah who is or what is his name the rabbis say now these are not christians 
These, these are rabbis. These are Jews from the, the, about the 500 A.D., right? This is 5th century A.D. The rabbis say the leprous one. Those of the house of rabbis say the sick one. As it is said, surely he hath borne our sicknesses. And that would be those of the Sanhedrin, speaking of Isaiah 53.4 in about 500 A.D. They had no doubt in their mind, these Jews, that this was God speaking about his Messiah. If you, degree, if you disagree with the Jews of years ago, please keep reading, listening, as I promise you, you will see why they thought Jehovah was speaking about his Messiah in these two sections. Let's keep reading. He says, God says in the, verse 13 there, Behold... My servant, he shall be exalted and extolled. So that means lifted up and be very high. This could be a good lifting up and be a good uh, being brought up very high and being exalted, except for what God says next, verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now things seemed to change there a bit, didn't they? Jehovah's servants seemed to not be so exalted or lifted up in a good way from what that verse 14 just said. His visage and his form or body being marred more than any man. The word marred in Hebrew is Strong's H. 4893, and it's mishkath, defined as disfigurement, specifically of the face, or some type of corruption is what the definition says, which means that either Jehovah's servant here was born with his face and all his body disfigured, or others caused him to be this way, disfigured or marred. You'll have to be the judge of why God's servant here was disfigured as per the context of the sections as we read on. So, so God's servant was to be one that deals prudently, is lifted up, but I don't think in a good way, as he's marred or disfigured more than any man. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle, and the word there is either a sprinkle like of blood, the word in the Hebrew meant and definitions were either he'd sprinkle with blood it often referenced the times that god's uh, god would kill a sacrifice and then they take he'd take the blood and sprinkle it on the altar or sprinkle it on the peace, priest garments or so on and so forth or to startle here the context demands that we we go with the word startle he so so shall he startle many nations and the reason is is the context of this verse kings shall shut their mouths at him well if you're being sprinkled with blood you're not that was a normal jewish thing if this was a normal jewish thing no jew ever went oh my gosh he's sprinkling the temple with blood no so he so he shall startle many nations kings shall shut their mouths at him because they're like what what is what's going on they did they're speechless when they see him and they think this figure that's marred he's being lifted up he's marred who does that sound like to you if it's not in a good way well it sounds like christ when he was marred after he was flogged after he was put up on the cross and and the, people were looking up at him and going, oh my gosh, he's so awful looking, right? I mean, that's just what I'm, that's what I'm seeing. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. Remember, the Jews had a picture of their Messiah, a reigning and ruling and great and powerful Messiah that was going to come and bring peace to the Jewish nation and gather all the, the Jews back together to their land. Yet here, God's talking to us about a, a Messiah that's, that's so it doesn't sound like that, does it? It doesn't sound like this great king reigning Messiah over the whole world. It sounds like a Messiah that's been hurt. A Messiah that's been, well, he's being lifted up. and looks sounds like crucifixion. Uh, extolled, lifted up very high. Uh, he's marred. He's disfigured. Why? Well, I mean, God in the Old Testament, I can tell you this, he never called any of his people to serve him that were all screwed up. Like there's a whole section, I believe it's in Leviticus, God talks about if a priest or someone has a crushed testicle or one man's leg is shorter than, you know, shorter than the other one, then that one is disqualified for serving me. Because why? Well, because God wanted the best to serve him for God is the best, right? And so here, why would he choose a servant disfigured from the womb when he didn't even allow his priest's or his servants of the Old Testament to serve him if they had some kind of imperfection in their body. 
That's common sense here. So what these kings are seeing, they're like, they're like, wow, I don't believe what we're seeing here. Holy camoli, this is not what we've expected, right? So <laughs> if you, for you see, if Jehovah's Messiah in this section was ruling and reigning in great power and doing all the awesome things that certain prophecies say of him and as the Jews only believe about him, then why too also is he startling or surprising the nations and why are the kings of the nations shutting their mouths at him? If he was a great king ruling and reigning only, kings would be praising him, giving him praise, lifting him up themselves. Not him being lifted up in a way that doesn't sound like it's anybody doing it. It sounds like somebody's doing it to him, not for a good way. So anyway, putting the whole context of this section of Isaiah together, Jehovah portrays his Messiah as one that's not lifted up in a good way. He's one that's disfigured and one that none of the kings of the earth neither gave praise to nor are impressed with. Doesn't sound here like he's a reigning and ruling Messiah that's a king over the whole earth bringing peace and restoring all the Jews to their land. Sounds rather like someone that they completely didn't expect to come at all. Let's go on to Isaiah 53. Let's look at verses 1 through 12. Jehovah continues to give us a greater picture of Messiah in the next chapter, Isaiah 53. So flip or roll your eyes over there. Read verses 1 through 12. Again, I'm going to take breaks as I'm going to explain. It goes on to say this. Who has believed our report? Look at the context so far. Context, we've been told. Uh, <laughs> we've been told people of this report of Messiah who has believed us, right? We, we've, we've told them, but who's believed us? Who's believed what we said? Sounds like even here, it's because they were telling people of a certain type of Messiah, but the Messiah that seems to come here is not the same Messiah that people were expecting. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Whom has God revealed his great power of Messiah to? God gives us two questions there about his Messiah, then goes on to reveal to us why he gave them. Read the first uh, uh, sentence of verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant as a root out of dry ground. So Jehovah tells us that Messiah will grow up before him as a tender plant, which seems to be in complete agreement to what he said of his Messiah in Isaiah 7 and 9. Remember Isaiah 7, he was going to be born of a virgin, meaning he was going to come into the earth as a baby and be born a virgin child. And of course, that child's not going to reign as an infant newborn baby that infant child's going to have to grow up and get you know become a young man and then a man in order to rule the nation of Israel. And Isaiah 9, 7, uh, 6 and 7 tells us that that child, uh, for a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. That's Messiah, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and his kingdom, he'll sit, right? In order to establish judgment throughout the whole earth. I'm not going to read, I'm not going to read all of that there. So I believe from what Isaiah 53, 2 and Isaiah 7 and 9 of Isaiah also say that he that, that we can make the easy leap and say that Messiah would grow up before Jehovah as a tender young child and into adulthood. But that's not all this verse says. Keep reading in verse 2 after, after ground, right? He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Few great noteworthy things to talk about in that verse. First thing to note is that Jehovah tells us that his Messiah, this Messiah he's speaking about here, has no comeliness. Which means that when he comes, he'll have no, that word means ornament splendor or honor so this messiah will be one without splendor well a great reigning and ruling king they've got splendor this messiah that god's speaking about here has no splendor no ornament no honor and that's super important to knowing who he is next thing we see here is that he has no beauty no beauty that Isaiah says here, God says through Isaiah, no beauty so that we, I believe that we as the Jews, 
Because remember, the Old Testament says that the Messiah is going to come back. And when he comes back, he's coming to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. He's coming to the Jews for their benefit. So these Jews here, Jehovah's telling us that, that, that we have no beauty. That means that the Jews aren't going to see him as any beauty. And they're not going to desire or care about him or care to have anything to do with him. That means that this Messiah is going to be a rejected one, according to the Jews. Very easy, very simple. They're not the ruling and reigning Messiah that the Jews only today expect that's coming. What if this section is really talking to us about God's servant, though, as Israel or as the Jews? Does the context of this section so far and the rest, we're going to read it on, Does it really define the way God spoke of the way his children of Israel grew up before him, what he made them? I think you got to be the judge. Ezekiel 16, 1 through 14. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, this is God speaking about Israel now, the nation of Israel. Son of man, which is what he, a nickname he gave Ezekiel, caused Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. And and as for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water nor cleansed. You were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped with swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. So, so far, it actually lines up. The children of Israel seem to be in their birth, that is. And what happened to them directly after their birth, they actually do seem to line up with a kind of a tough beginning and having no beauty and so on and so forth. But remember, the context we're talking about so far is that he shall grow up before him into a as a tender plant, into basically into maturity. That would mean that we got to look at the whole of what God says here. What does Israel not only look like? If this is Israel in Isaiah 52 and 53, is... God's Messiah here, or is it Israel, and is Israel, do they fit the same exact picture that God gives us here in Ezekiel as this one grows up? Not quite. Verse 6, keep reading Ezekiel if you're already there, Ezekiel 16, 6. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew matured, and became very beautiful. Huh. Well, now that doesn't seem to line up, does it? Because God says here that this one here in Isaiah 52 and 53, he was going to grow up but be marred, and he was going to have a visage that was marred, and, and he was not going to have any beauty, right? But yet here God says of Israel that as they grew, they became beautiful. He says, your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness as I swore to you. Uh, yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord. Verses 9 through 14. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put jewelry in your nose, earrings in your ears and your and a beautiful crown on your head. <laughs> Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was a fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I bestowed on you, says the Lord. Now, in most of that section, after God had taken Israel at his birth to become his firstborn, they became beautiful. And God just spoke there that he said that you attained to royalty, even as the nation saw Israel as beautiful. God even says that Israel there was 
perfect in his and the nation's eyes because of his splendor. Now, stark contrast to Isaiah 52. 3, 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root on a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's a stark contrast there, isn't there? If Israel was really the servant of Isaiah 52 and 53, then God would have never said of them that they, weren't be- or that they were beautiful to him and to the nations as he did of them in Ezekiel chapter 16. Isaiah 52 and 53, folks, is not talking about Israel. It's just simply not. Jehovah's telling us about his anointed king Messiah, just not a reigning and ruling and great political power king, as what the Jews think now, but a king that came to suffer and be rejected at his first coming. Jehovah meant his Messiah to come the first time as his king, but not in power to rule the nations, but to be rejected, to suffer, and to die for the sins of mankind, just like Daniel chapter 9 in that prophecy that Gabriel gave to Daniel chapter 9. He was to be cut off, but or that meant to die in a ritualistic covenant way, right? Not, But not for himself, which means he was to die for others. Go back and look at uh, Daniel chapter 9 for that, as I talked about last week. The rest of Isaiah 53 even goes on to back up that this servant in Isaiah 52 and 53 as Jehovah's Messiah. For as you will see, it goes on to completely contradict the picture that God gave of a beautiful Israel in Ezekiel 16. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of many sorrows and acquainted with grief. God never described Israel as a singular man of sorrows, number one, nor acquainted with grief. They had grief of heart and rejected uh, and, and rejected for certain times and were rejected for certain times by God when they turned away from following him. You can see the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations, his other book of suffering. But no, this Messiah here will be hated and rejected by man, by the Jews that he was coming to go to. Rest of verse 3. And we hid, he goes on to say, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The Jews, remember the context of who Messiah was going to come to. The Jews hid their faces from him, and at the time of his coming here, they were not going to esteem him, which means they weren't going to think very highly of him. Jehovah even tells us there a second time that he will be, a re- he will be rejected by the Jews. God repeats himself, and that's important whenever God does that in, in the Old Testament or any his word at all. Could that have been Israel? Well, the nations never hid their faces from Israel as a nation. The nations did despise and not esteem Israel, but that was only because God turned them against them because of their disobedience to him. Hiding the face means that they were ashamed of him. The nations were never ashamed of Israel. They just hated Israel because they were God's, you know, chosen people. Uh, Next verse, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The Messiah, remember the Sanhedrin 98b of the of the Babylonian Talmud here, or the Jerusalem Talmud, the Messiah, what is his name, the rabbis say, the leprous one. Those of the house of rabbis say the sick one, as it is said, surely he has borne our sickness, right? Speaking of those Jews back in 580 that thought that Isaiah 53 was the Messiah. This is God's vision to Isaiah, speaking about his Messiah, the afflicted one. So the one of suffering who was going to carry the sorrows of Israel, the Jews, which would make him a great healer. Same as Isaiah 35, 1 through 6 speaks of. Here, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Basically, when he'd come, he'd lift them up. He'd take away their their afflictions. He would take away their sicknesses. Isaiah 35, he was a great healer. Yet, those that Isaiah sees here, when they look upon him, they will think he's smitten by God. He's smitten or struck, beaten, or scourged by God. I mean, I don't know if that 
rings a bell as to what you've heard, but that is super significant. Israel here, though, never, as a nation, never borne anyone's griefs or sicknesses or carried anyone's sorrows. Israel never healed anybody. They made Jehovah a sorrowful God many times, but they never carried his or anyone else's sorrows. Verse 5, uh, Isaiah 53, But he was wounded for our transgressions. That would be wounded or deeply physically hurt. Specifically here, as we keep on, as, as he just said, specifically for the transgressions of the people or of his people. Transgression is a type of sin. So he was wounded for their sins. He was hurt, deeply physically hurt because of their sins. He was bruised for our iniquities, God says, goes on to say there. Bruised uh, bruised for our iniquities is bruised or beaten for the sin of the Jews. Iniquity is another type of sin. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Israel's peace came through him, and by his stripes, rather the floggings or beatings he would receive, Israel would be healed. That's what God just said of his Messiah when he came. Even though he would be a suffering and rejected Messiah, Israel would still receive peace through this one that God's speaking to here of us, or to us of in Isaiah 53. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. God says there that the Jews had gone astray or, or wandered away from him, of course, and each one had gone their own way. Uh, they had done this many times before, but God says when this Messiah comes, this is what they're going to be doing. This is where they're going to be at. They're going to be away from God. Uh, look next. And the Lord has laid on him this Messiah from Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him, my Messiah, the iniquity of us all. (laughs) That means that because the Jews had turned away from him, which is sin, he had this one that Isaiah is talking about come so that God could lay their iniquity or sin on him. Does that sound familiar? I'm going to tie it in at the end, but does that sound like something else you've heard before? (laughs) <laughs> that means that, that the one that Jehovah is speaking to us about here was a sin sacrifice. Because that's exactly what God commanded under the old covenant with the sin sacrifices of bulls and goats and rams. All their sins were to be laid on the sin sacrificed animal and the animal's blood was to make atonement or payment or a covering for the sins of the people before God. Except here we see that God is sending a singular man, his servant from Isaiah 52, servant of his to be this sacrifice, a singular man. And Israel never was a sacrifice for anyone's sins. Wow. Isn't that exactly what Gabriel told Daniel in, in chapter 9, 26? And, and after the it, Gabriel tells this Daniel, I, I said go look at it, but I forgot that I had put it in my notes. Daniel 9, 26 says this of the Messiah that was going to come in a time period that included the first century A.D. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. Remember last week I spoke about the same thing. The Hebrew word there for cut off is is karath, Strong's H3772, and it's common word used in Mosaic, and it's a common word used in Mosaic law, and simply means to be killed, specifically to make a covenant. Gabriel just told us that Messiah was to be killed, specifically to make a covenant, just as an animal would have been killed under the law of Moses, Isaiah 52 and 53, Daniel 9, completely parallel paragraphs, completely parallel passages of Scripture. Verse 7, Isaiah 53, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before it shears the silence, so he opened not his mouth. Here God tells us that his Messiah will be oppressed and afflicted. Uh, that, That would be by others. Others would do that to him. Then he was to be led as a lamb to the slaughter. Right? We, we see that God's making a progression here, don't we? God's telling us he's rejected, he's been beaten, he's, he's disfigured, he's been lifted up and he's, he's going to be high and lifted up. 
And, and now we see here that he's being led as a lamb to the slaughter. And that would be, as I've already talked about, context of Isaiah 53, to be killed for the sins of Israel and the world. Yet while they're doing this to him, he wouldn't complain nor open his mouth in a negative way. He wasn't going to go, oh man, why are you allowing this to happen to me, God? Verse 8, Isaiah 53, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Jehovah's working toward the climax of what's going to happen to Messiah. and says that before he was to be a sin sacrifice of people, he'd be put in prison and judgment. But what next? And who will declare his generation? <laughs> Daniel 9 here again. For he was cut off from the land of the living. Cut off here, not karath like in Daniel 9 though, but cut off gazar, Strong's H1504, to cut off destroy or exterminate. So God wanted to make it very clear here the Messiah was going to be terminated. His life will be terminated. Gone, he will no longer be in the land of the living. Leaving the land of the living being killed, he goes on to say, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken, which means that he was specifically killed, exterminated, terminated for the transgressions of the sins of people, making Jehovah's Messiah here a sin sacrifice for mankind. Sound familiar? <laughs> it should. I'll get to it at the end. Verse 9, Isaiah 53. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. There we see that Messiah gets killed with wicked people, yet he's buried with the rich. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. God backs it up, keeps pouring it on. This guy that's coming, he's bruised. He, he's, he's high and lifted up. He's, he's disfigured. Nobody, kings can't even look at him. He's so awful. And yet he's going to be killed, exterminated for the sins of the people. But before that, he's going to be rejected. He's going to be despised. And, and he goes on, <laughs> yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, he has put him to grief when he made his soul an offering. First sin. Here we see that he was specifically a sin sacrifice for the people. Israel was never ever said of God to be a sin sacrifice for anyone. God had to institute sin sacrifices of animals for their rebellion and sins against him is what the Old Testament says. But they were never to be a sin sacrifice for anyone else. Yet just as we read there though that Messiah was, was to be killed... Israel was never killed or cut off from the land of the living. Uh, they were never exterminated to death. And in fact, God says uh, very plainly throughout the whole book of Jeremiah, off and on, he speaks of, it, of Israel as that he would never allow them to be separated from his side. If there is seed time and harvest, sun, moon, stars, God would never, ever, 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 ever wipe Israel out before his eyesight. And so uh, here we see, we go on to read the rest of verse 10, uh, since that couldn't have been uh, Israel that God was speaking about being killed or cut off, exterminated. We see here that this Messiah was killed and that now read the verse 10. I'm going to start reading at verse 10 again. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. But he goes on to say, it's not pretty much it's not over. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. She, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Didn't Messiah just die? Specifically, according to the context and plain verbiage of this section, didn't he just die for the sins of the people? Yet there in verse 10 and even starting in 11, here we see that he lives after he dies, right? How could anyone see his seed when he's dead? Nobody that's in heaven or nobody that's in hell, well, it, what, uh, via this be a normal person, they don't know what's going on here in the land of the living. The Bible says so. They don't know what's going on. They're oblivious. They've either, they're paying for their sins in hell forever or, or they're enjoying God's presence in eternity. But nobody after they're killed 
shall see their seed, which means what they've done, the, the offspring of what, who, what they've produced when they left. Uh, he shall prolong his days. Nobody's prolonging their days when they're killed. When you're killed, you're dead. Your days are over. Yet here, this one was killed, cut off from the land of the living, gone, wiped out, exterminated, and yet they're still, that somehow, here, they, they're alive, which means they must come back to life. Right, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That means that God's still using him. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He's alive here, guys. He's alive. Second half of verse 11, then verse 12. By his not, not only does he live, look what he does by his life. By being a sin sacrifice for mankind. By his knowledge, God goes, God goes on to say, by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Or in other words, he makes many in a right standing before Jehovah and saves them from eternal destruction by their knowledge of him. Because why? He bore or took care of their sins of iniquity. End result for Messiah, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Be, now, that's somebody that's alive, right? He can't do that if you're dead. But he even says it here. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He died, but in his death, he did all those things. He bore the sins of many in his death, just like a sin sacrifice would in the Old Testament. He made intercession for transgressors, yet he died. How does somebody die do those things? Well, they have to be born again. They have to resurrect. So God's Messiah here lived he died and then he resurrected. God never said of Israel that they were to be a sin sacrifice. Israel was never to bear the sins of anyone else. Israel was never and will never ever be killed for anyone or anything. As I've already told you, Jeremiah, God, God said Israel will always be a nation in my sight. No matter how bad they were, even in the book of Jeremiah, where God was basically sending the king of Babylon in to destroy Jerusalem and send the people away. God even spoke of them then, Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31, that he would never allow Israel to be removed as a nation from his sight. Listen, please, folks. As far as the servant of Isaiah 52 and 53 goes, and what God said would happen to him in these sections, God never ever said Israel would do anything similar. He did, on the other hand, say in Daniel chapter 9, some of these same things about Messiah there in Daniel 9. The one that, according to Daniel, Daniel 9's prophecy, was to come within the early 1st century A.D. time period, as I talked about last week. In case you are wondering who I think God's servant is in Isaiah 52, 53, as I've already told you, I think from the whole study, though, not just because of what I've heard, I believe that these scriptures are clearly speaking to us of Jesus, who called himself God's Messiah, the Christ, the same one that came the first time in the time frame that Daniel said that he would come in Daniel 9. Why would I say these things? Listen to these contrasts, right? These two sections identically point as Jesus Christ as God's Messiah, right? Look at this pinpoint accuracy. Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men and not esteemed. That was Messiah from Isaiah 53.3. The Apostle John in John 1, 10 and 11, what he said of Jesus Christ. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. What does it mean not to be received? That means you're rejected. As we know... The, the majority of the Jews, as the Jewish leadership also, rejected him as God's Messiah and, and never did accept him. And, and we'll get on to what they did to him in a little bit. <clears throat> Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the great healer. Jesus Christ was an amazing healer. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew 15, 30 and 31. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, 
maimed and others. And they hit and they laid them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. <laughs> Yet we esteemed him stricken the rest of uh, Isaiah 53 and 4 and 5. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. To which the New Testament about Jesus Christ said Matthew 20, 17 through 19. Now Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and will and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And that is exactly what happened as the Jews handed him over to Pilate, who had him scourged, uh, marred him up horribly. Scourging in those days, a lot of times a, a whole bunch of flesh was ripped off of the body itself. Open bones. They would see organs. The the, the, the face, uh, when they were taking Jesus Christ in, they put a, a bag over his head and they struck him. Who, who's, who is it that struck you, Messiah, if you know? That would mar up your face pretty bad too, wouldn't it? Isaiah 52, he, he was marred more than any man. And here we know that Jesus Christ was, had, was scourged and crucified to put him to death. Isaiah 53, 6 and 7. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Sheep before its shears is sound, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus Christ never complained once as they were leading him to the cross. Look at what we read here. Luke 23, 26 through 28 tells us, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrenium, who was coming from the the country, and on him <coughs> they had laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and weep for your children. He had every right right there, every every opportunity. To go, woe is me, I'm about to die. Look at all that I've been through and I've suffered. Whoa, wow. And he could have started crying. Yet he didn't. He comforted them in his trouble. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silence, he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Matthew 26, Jesus Christ was arrested, tried by the Jews in the high, court, in the high priest courtyard, found, uh, though he was not guilty, found guilty yet for no crime, then guarded in custody in one of the high priest's rooms there, and we'll call it a prison. He was in prison being guarded by soldiers. Then the next morning, Matthew chapter 27, they took him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, to try to get a guilty judgment on him so that Pilate would order the death penalty because in that time period, the Romans had taken away the Jews' uh, right to give the death penalty. So Jesus was taken from prison and from judgment, uh, still 53.8, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Jesus, whom proclaimed himself to be the Christ Messiah, also said that he would die for the sins of mankind. Matthew 26, 26-28. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, or the payment of sins. Then the Romans crucified him on a cross in direct request to the Jews' petition of Pilate, Matthew 27, when he was then crucified on the Passover. By the way, exactly when the Jews would sacrifice their sin sacrifice for the whole nation, the greatest Passover ever when God passed over the doors of the Israelites to, to save them as he laid the wrath on those that were not underneath. 
Interesting coincidence? I think not. Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus, whom scripture never records sinning, was crucified on a cross and next to two criminals. He was, his grave was with the wicked there, Matthew 27, 44. Isaiah 53, 9 again, but with the rich at his death. Jesus died with criminals, but was honored in his burial and was buried in a rich man's death with a rich man's tomb. A tomb he was buried in belonged to the rich man Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew 27, 57. True criminals that perished in that time after crucifixion never, ever got a burial in a rich man's tomb. Tombs were for rich people because it was very expensive and costly to have, and people that were being crucified were poor and and, and beggars, and those people didn't get those types of burials. Yet Jesus was indeed buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53, 9 and 10, Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief when you make a soul an offering for sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, one of his apostles uh, later on that also perished and died for Christ Jesus. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. John the Baptist, Gospel of John, 129. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. Pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of soul and be satisfied. This Messiah, although was cut off and died, rose again, resurrected. Well, Jesus Christ, nobody in history has ever died and then been known to come back to life. Eyewitness proof. Yet, Jesus Christ was that one. He certainly died. Died for the sins of mankind is what he says, what those that testified of him said. Yet that after all, he was, he was dead and buried in a tomb. After the third day, he rose again, and the disciples and many others saw him. By the way, in case you were wondering, it was the fact of their witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead that ended up costing 10 out of the 12 original apostles their lives, for they could not deny that they saw him alive after he died, and they would not deny that he was the Christ. Jehovah's Messiah, the one Isaiah foretold of 800 years before he was born. Last verses, Isaiah, uh, verses 11 and 12. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide them a portion with the great, shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Matthew 27, 44. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, whom Scripture proclaims to be God's sinless Lamb of God, was crucified on a cross next to two criminals, making him numbered as a sinner himself. How about by his, right, by his knowledge... Uh, by his knowledge, justifying many, bringing them into a right standing before Jehovah, uh, being pardoned from their sin. Acts 13, 37 through 39, and Jesus Christ, John 3, 16. Acts 13, 37 through 39. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus Christ, has preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his so did the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is their condemnation, that the light has come to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Coincidence? I think not. Remember that survey, 100 people asked on the streets of Tel Aviv, who is this passage talking about? And a majority of them said Jesus until they learned that was written from their Old Testament, from their Tanakh. Oh, well, well wait a minute now, that challenges what I've been taught. <laughs> wait a minute, that can't be Jesus now. 
their first profession was right on the money. Uh, did you know because of the pinpoint accuracy of the things that Messiah would go through in Isaiah 52, 53, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those similarities that most Jews or unbelievers think Christians wrote these two chapters of the Bible out of Isaiah. They actually couldn't be further from the truth. As, again, as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, Isaiah was written 800 years or so on right in that area before Christ ever lived and before there ever was any such thing as a Christian on this earth. The, di- the documents that we have of Isaiah are phenomenal, in case you're not familiar with archaeology. Uh, the documents of Isaiah that we still have from ancient history are called the Great Isaiah Scroll. They were the oldest copies that we know of the Bible. They were discovered in a series of 12 caves around the site known as Wadi Qumran near the Dead Sea in the west bank of the Jordan River. And they were discovered in, uh, between 1946 and 1956 by Bedouin teenage shepherds and a team of archaeologists. The books in the collection that were found at the Dead Sea, every book of the Old Testament except for Esther was found. And they were all dated to have been written between 150 B.C. and 70 A.D. The Isaiah scroll that's in question here that you may think, well, Christians wrote that, see, somewhere in the first century A.D., see, 70 A.D. Well, the Isaiah scroll that was dated, that was found, not by Christians, by the way, and the Isaiah scroll that was dated by science was dated at the first century B.C., which is roughly a hundred years before Christ or any Christian walked the earth, making it still to this day the earliest Old Testament manuscript still in existence. And yet, with pinpoint precision, Isaiah 52, 53, scrolls that were found in the Qumran site and the Dead Sea of Israel that no Christian had touched because they were dated before any Christian ever walked the face of the earth and they're still in museums all over the world to this day with pinpoint accuracy. Isaiah 52 and 53 exactly portrays the recorded life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah from the New Testament of the Bible. Jesus Christ, folks, is God's Messiah. And God gave us some empirical truth in His Word to prove it to us, and in history and in archaeology. Upon that information, ladies and gentlemen, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ as God's Messiah, because there was no proof, or, oh, well, you know, that's just a made-up story, who could have ever made up a story that fit the bill perfectly like this. Men gave their lives for the testimony of Jesus Christ, or the testimony of Jesus Christ's apostles, of Him being the suffering servant from Isaiah 52 and 53. They lost their lives because they would not say that He wasn't the Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53 suffering servant. Wow. What do you do? What do you do? My hope, God's hope and desires that if you haven't believed before today, that you would, number one, believe. That you would, number one, turn to Jesus Christ and believe and stop unbelieving. Jesus Christ was God's suffering Messiah from Isaiah 52 and 53. He was the fulfillment of that in his first coming, (laughs) rejected, a man scorned, paid for the sins of the people by his death. Daniel 9, Isaiah 53. God's desire is that you surrender to Jesus Christ and start to follow him and surrender your life to him as a man would a woman in marriage or a woman would a man in marriage. Surrender yourself to him as such. And begin to follow him today. There are so many treasures in the Tanakh to the Old Testament. So many things. Just read the Gospel of Matthew is what I encourage people that are Jews or don't believe to read because Matthew actually was a Jew and he became a converted Christian Jew. And in his Gospel, he parallels so 
many of the same prophecies that I've been going through here in these last four or five weeks here at Gospel Saving Church. And he points them out and shows you where they're at, talks about the prophet, the Old Testament that wrote it. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ was God's Messiah. Turn to him and be saved from your sins and begin a relationship with God today. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God in heaven, for your word. Thank you so much, Lord God in heaven, for the amazing pinpoint accuracy. Lord God, and it's important to note, Lord, that Jesus didn't have anything to do with putting himself on the cross. If people may think, well, he purposely uh, fulfilled that prophecy. Well, he didn't purposely crucify his own self, Lord God. He purposely just came and fulfilled the purposes that you had of him. And mankind fulfilled the suffering and death and murder of Jesus Christ as your word in Isaiah 52 and 53 speaks of. Please, Lord God, please, Lord God, please. Turn the peoples to Jesus Christ today, God, please. Help them to believe. Help them to surrender today. Please, Lord God, we love you and we praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name.